From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair podcast. It is Monday. Adam is not with us. Yeah, he's out partying somewhere he's in Pennsylvania. Partying in Pennsylvania. We'll see him on Friday, though. Yes. Anyway, we have lots to talk about today, Zach, because last week was our Next Wave Awards party. Big bash, celebrating our winners this year. You were there. I was. We were there partying together. Yeah. Uh, and then you painted New York City red. After. <laughs> Many colors, truly. <laughs> Lots of colors. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Joanna, why don't you start by, since since that chronologically was sort of uh, the beginning, what, did, what what were your takeaways from the party itself? What did you, what did you enjoy? Drinks-wise or just generally? Maybe a little of both. Yeah, a little bit of both. Well, I think it was an excellent party. We were so excited yeah. with the turnout and most of our winners were there except for one. And um, it was so nice to see them in person and to be able to celebrate them and then to drink many of their beverages. So we had some beers from Gold Spot Brewing, um, our brewer of the year, Calissa Heber. Um, that is her brewery. We had some beer from Funky Town Brewery, which is our brewery of the year out of Chicago. Um, we had wines from Field Recordings and Nathan Kay, our uh, winery and winemaker of the year, respectively. And we had some Frey Ranch whiskey, which is our spirits brand of the year. So lots and lots. I don't think I'm seeing anything. We had so much great stuff. And yeah. lot, lots and lots to drink. <laughs> you sure did. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, that was so much fun. Zach, did you have a good time? I did. It was great. <laughs> you know, a bigger, uh, definitely a much bigger gathering than two years ago when I was last yes. uh, there for the Next Wave Awards, the first uh, the bit. first edition, uh, which was cool. Kind of fun to see, you know, not just a lot of people from the various, uh, you know, uh, honorees, but also just people from the drinks community, particularly in New York, show up. That was very fun. Yes, Get to and meet some a few of people. our listeners. Thank you for yeah, coming. Yeah, some listeners. Thank you all. Uh Paul, Brady, I'm very sorry we didn't get a chance to meet up. Adam did a very poor job of connecting us, but uh, <laughs> you know, one of our one of our most diehard listeners, I'm pretty sure, and and a number of other ones out there too. So, yeah, no, it was great, a lot of fun. And then uh, you and Adam, uh, you know, you called it called it a night after that. But I, despite no sleep, I was I was <laughs> I was off on my uh, on my New York adventure. So yeah, I was. Off to one of the honorees, Super Bueno, for some drinks afterwards. Got to try the very, the very famous vodka y soda, delicious, yes. of course. Definitely a great, just great vibe, big time party. Obviously, you know, more of a party. Well, not more of a party than normal. Probably a same amount of party as always, but felt special because many of, uh, you know, a fair number of people made the trek over from uh, from Williamsburg all the way there to. Uh, to the East Village, which was fun, and then um, where else did I go? Goodness, okay. Yes, well, we'll try to keep this concise. Us. Hit hit the highlights. Got to have uh, got to go to Gage and Tolner, another frequent uh, mention on this pod with Adam. He and I had a, a multiple martini lunch. That was really <laughs> nice. Uh, we also we also ate some food. It's true. Uh, and let's see here. Got to go to a couple places that I had long been intending to go. Uh, Maison Premier, uh, also in Williamsburg, actually yes. pretty close to the venue. Made it back out there a few days later. Oh, yes. You had the Jungle Bird, right? I had the Jungle Bird and the uh, Absinthe Colada, which was mm. very, very good. Very fun drink, for sure. Great space. You know, it's funny. This is one of those things that I always, that struck me uh, at a couple of the bars I went to, which is, you know, I forget this sometimes, in particular in New York, not exclusively in New York. It's like, these places are small. Yeah. Like, 
it is Maison Premier has a beautiful like outside outdoor Backyard, garden, which yeah. is where I sat, but like because it was like probably the last nice day in New York for the year. But still, even with that, just like not a very big bar. And you think of them in these sort of like and it is a justifiably very, very acclaimed and, and uh, famous bar, but it was not like, you know, big. <laughs> no. <laughs> and uh I got to go to uh I went to the Hawksmoor with my cousin, had oh, a nice. had the the very cold martini, which yes. was the ultimate martini, which was very good as well. Um I will say a couple of other spots that we went. I went to Shinji's with Tim McCurdy uh at his insistence, which was you know, it was an interesting thing. Uh, we've talked about Shinji's and their kind of approach to cocktails on the pod before. I will say that I think the amount of preparation that goes into those drinks, everything that's done before the bar opens, is impressive. I will say I'm not sure that it always translates into a clearly better drink. And sometimes when you are, at least in my experience, being told all these many steps that go into making this cocktail, especially a version of an existing classic, and you're like, uh, okay, but maybe if you just made it the normal way, it would uh, not be so labor intensive and also not like $29. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's their vibe. I will say it was very cool to get what was essentially a Ramos Gin Fizz that was made in like less than a minute uh, and very, very good. So that that was one where I felt like, man, all that prep clearly paid off at, in service. I also felt it was very funny and had nothing to do with anything other than uh, there was like, well, Tim and I were sitting there. There was uh, two people who came in who were pretty clearly on either a first date or a very early date. Mm-hmm. And one of them apparently did not drink, which feels oh. like an interesting choice. Like maybe something you would not really the place that you would want to go. And I, I actually felt like uh, it was nice to hear like the bar tenders did a really, I think thoughtful job of trying to give this person some, you know, a non-alcoholic drink option, despite it clearly not being really like what they were trying no. to do. They do have, I think an <laughs> NA drink on their menu. Oh, okay. uh, this person did not want anything to do with that. So oh, it was, okay. it was interesting to kind of eavesdrop on that and, and see how they handled that situation, which is always a little bit of a, a tricky one when someone wants something off menu entirely. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of any other places that stood out. Um, probably more uh you can uh, i could i would have to go back and check like my instagram feed but all told it was a great time uh didn't do very much sleeping which is good not really my goal when i come to new york for the most part uh did a did a a couple of weeks worth of drinking in three days so yeah that was great have fun (laughs) good i'm so glad you had a good time yeah i feel like there's a maybe in the time since you've been here last a lot has uh opened and and been written about and discussed here so Yes, and it was super cool for me having heard about many of these places on this very podcast, but having not experienced them to uh, put a face to a name, as it were, Um, you know, have a sense for these places that you and Adam in particular talk about with some regularity and uh, yeah, give them some context for me. So yeah, nice. Speaking of expensive drinks. Yeah, right. Uh, so I wanted to t- we wanted to talk today about a piece uh, written recently by uh, Evan Rail for for us called uh, "The Many Factors Fueling Premiumization in the Spirit Space." And you know, this is something we've talked about before. I yeah. think you know what's interesting here is that uh, Evan both points out some examples that go beyond sort of the premiumization we've seen mostly in whiskey. He talks about a very very expensive, you know, a thirty year old three thousand dollar bottle of Chopin vodka, um, which you know it's obviously a, a going to catch going to going to get some attention because it's not a thing we think about with with vodka. Obviously, we're seeing it most commonly in whiskey and tequila, but you know, sort of a question as you know, sort of what is driving this? And I know you have some thoughts on all this, Joanna. So I want you to share yours, then I'm going to maybe tack on one or two more on top of uh, whatever your your takes are here. So what you got? Yeah, I guess I guess my thoughts were more like I felt 
coming away from this article felt somewhat skeptical about some of the uh, reasons given, um, mainly the ones around like consumer behavior. And, uh, you know, one in particular was that consumers are not drinking as much as they were, which is something we've talked about quite a bit um, in the past. But this idea that they're like trying to be healthier and opting for three drinks instead of five drinks. And and so and and, and so that's like they're because the vol- they're not drinking as much volume wise that they're spending more money on like better quality spirits or better quality beverages because they're drinking less of it. Um, <clears throat> and this idea also that they're shifting up on some occasions, like more ex- like spending more on spirits or bourbon or something like that, and then down on other occasions. Like, so if they buy the more expensive bourbon, then they'll buy like some macro beer instead of craft beer. And I just. I was just wondering, like, do people really, is that really a consideration when people are buying things? Like, if I'm going out and I'm buying alcohol, I'm like, well, I'll splurge on this bourbon, but then when I get beer, I'm going to get Miller Miller High Life. I just felt somewhat, like, skeptical of that (laughs) as a real reason. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's maybe some potentiality where for a person who is saying, hey, my drinking occasions are fewer, but I want them to be more special. You know, maybe I don't drink every single night. I'm going to drink three nights a week. But if I'm going to have wine three nights a week, that's going to be not a $10 to $12 bottle of wine. That's going to be a $15 to $20 to $25 bottle of wine. And certainly a lot of the data we've seen in wine has showed that 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 category, yes. the, the lowest price point categories are the ones that are really suffering the most in terms of losing sales volume. And that, you know, there are, it's always hard to sort of come up with a one size fits all explanation for any big market trend like that. And anything that kind of is like a little, you know, all of these are a little too cute to be totally accurate. But I think there's certainly some potential sense there. I also think a big part of it is is that when it comes to spirits in particular, the focus of Evan's piece, I do think that there is something to be said about this is the first time where this kind of product has been not just available but publicized basically outside of scotch. I mean, it was really only scotch that you could buy 20 or 30 years ago that would carry with it this sort of allure and air of – I am buying a really special bottle of whiskey, right? huh. or a really special bottle of spirit, right? And and very little else was marketed that way. I mean, age statements were uncommon in other spirits categories. You know, a lot of them didn't even involve aging at all. And, you know, premium, I mean, the closest you came was like, you know, brands like Grey Goose sort of touting themselves as being- I was just going to say Grey Goose, yeah. Well, like- and touting themselves as like, we're, we're, we're cleaner, we're more, we're more sort of pristine- but not really like were a collectible item. I mean, Grey Goose was not selling you aged vodka with the idea that you were going to like, you know, kind of put it front and center of your bar exactly. It was like, we know you like drinking vodka. We know some of you like to feel a little fancier or think this is better for you or will taste better. So we're going to sell you a more expensive bottle that, you know, has this air of of that kind of sophistication. But I think, you know, the rise of collectible spirits, especially outside of Scotch, has really created some of this market demand, or at least space for people to try and 
create demand. And I think it's now kind of, uh, you know, broken contain outside of just, you know, whiskey and, and is spilling over into all these other categories. And again, it's not all stuff that's built for collectibles, but again, look at something else like, um, you know, monkey 47 or something, right? Like mm-hmm. the idea of an ultra premium gin might've seemed sort of ridiculous to people, 15 20 years ago or at least the things that were being created in that category were way less expensive you know they were your bombay sapphires your tangeray tens etc that were you know a little bump up in price because they were you know seen as being designed for a certain kind of drink or a certain kind of drinker and you know we are in this phase whether it lasts that's a great thing that we can discuss but i do think you know it's really interesting and i'm going to i'm going to add one last piece here which i think ties some of this together, at least in my eyes. I think a big reason for all of this is that wine has lost its primacy as the beverage alcohol collectible of choice. It's still certainly a thing that people collect, but a, but a lot of what you're seeing are people that would have invested heavily in, especially younger people with a lot of money who maybe in a generation past would have been like, well, what is the thing I, I like to drink? I like to show off with my drinking. I like to collect. The only thing for me to collect is wine. And now it's like, yeah, you can collect wine, but you can you could be the person who has an incredible, you know, uh, bourbon collection, incredible tequila collection, incredible, you know, whatever collection. Uh, And, you know, that is, I think, driving this because all of these spirits brands are like, well, shit, if there are people out there who are going to pay, who would pay five or ten thousand dollars a bottle for a bottle of wine at auction. Maybe some of those people will pay $5,000 or $10,000 for a bottle of whiskey or vodka or whatever. And some of them obviously will. Yeah. Well, I think it's also like, I mean, th- that this was something that came up in the piece that we discussed last week, uh, um, Shana Clark's piece on the over, uh, wine oversupply, um, you know, just spirits kind of usurping that space from wine. But I also think a huge consideration is how you consume these things and I think for a lot of people, spirits are a better investment that can be enjoyed over time. Whereas if you're investing in that wine, you have to wait, you're probably going to wait to drink it. And then when you do, unless you have something like a Coravan or whatever, like you're gonna, you know, drink it all in one shot. And and I think that's kind of, you know, we've seen this with people opting for cocktails over wine on at restaurants on menus. And I think it's just that that kind of logic has followed into how they purchase at the you know liquor store and at the wine shop yeah and i mean again part of this too is just about you know sort of what can happen when you create scarcity either real or imagined scarcity and then can Hmm. use it to drive a certain amount of of frenzy right i mean you look at the you know you look at the first anecdote that Evan relays here. This is about the, you know, about the Chopin. And it's like, you know, they very intentionally made a, a, you know, they're releasing a thousand bottles only sold by invitation. You have to like apply for consideration. Yeah. And like, you know, I don't think there's any particular reason that Chopin couldn't make, have bottled more of this. I mean, maybe they obviously couldn't have made millions of bottles of it because they probably don't have only had so much of that 30 year old (laughs) vodka lying around. But pretty clearly they chose a nice round number for press release purposes. And, like, you know, this is a very intentional thing, right? And maybe they figure that most of the benefit for them will be just more brand recognition, driving more attention to their core brand. Like, it's still kind of not that big of a deal. And it, it is just kind of, but it's about, 
you know, it's about creating this sense of like, is the thing you can only get this one time. You can only get, you know, this small amount of it. And, you know, I mean, again, he relays like uh, bourbon that's sent into, you know, to orbit the earth for a year or whatever. Like some of this is obviously $5,000. Yeah. Some of this is obviously gimmickry and like, you know, there's just the kind of the same kind of person who, you know, would go, you know, who would spend a lot of money on, you know, going in a submersible to the Marianas Trench. Um, you know, maybe it's a slightly safer investment of that money as it turns out, but like some of it is just people who have money and don't know what to spend it on. And these are, you know, products that are being created or marketed to fill that niche. But I also think that there is something that, you know, these really high end versions are are just one very kind of glaring example of what we are seeing, which is, I guess, an increased as spirits become more popular, you you see more and more opportunities for brands to capture many, you know, or position products at a lot of different price points. And some of those price points aren't necessarily going to be pretty steep because there's a market or there's, they believe there's a market for it. Yeah, I guess I guess in the times that we've been discussing or, um, you know, talking about premium, this premiumization trend that we've been seeing for a while now, I've never really considered the collectible spirit or the collectible side of things as a as a factor that's really driving this trend among m- most consumers. Yeah. But I I mean I I mean he mentions it in the piece as an example. Um but I but I think that there are just like a lot of other things that are really driving the trend. I also think so many of these products are really only being aimed at people who are going to consume them at home if they consume them at at all. Yeah. Like I think so little of this stuff is intended for, you know, on-premise yeah. sale, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's another thing that I think has changed a lot and is kind of distinct when it comes to spirits versus um, you know, like wine and stuff like that, right? So, you think about a lot of these like ultra premium spirits that are being that are being put out there. Yes, you might see them in some bars again, especially if they get a certain kind of acclaim, but but they're not really meant for you know, making cocktails and because of the reality of, you know, how um, expensive they are, the markup in a bar or restaurant would be so extreme that even for someone who likes to spend conspicuously, it might be tricky to do that. And in some of these cases, they're really only being sold in that fashion. Again, to come back to the Chopin example, you know, I don't know if you were a bar or restaurant that applied, maybe you would be able to get your hands on one or maybe you got one secondary market or something like that. But like, I think that there is there is this whole category of sort of drinking in a in a very kind of showy fashion that now happens at home, whereas obviously still there's a lot of showing off via spirits and you know when out whether that's a nightclub or a bar or whatever. But I do think that a lot of this stuff is like for people to put on the shelf and you know post on social and hmm. show off to their guests when they come over or whatever. And it's not really about putting it in the same kind of context that a lot of other spirits are, which are, yeah, they're available at a restaurant or bar. They're available at a liquor store. They're available at a grocery store in states where that's allowed or whatever. These are like things that you only can get, you know, that are, that are so, so premium and so controlled in a way that they don't ever really, they're, they're only really ever available in that way. Yeah. I, there was another point here that um, I wanted to ask your take on. Sure. Uh, this idea that there's like a growing popularity of smaller bottles and that people oh, interesting. that people are willing to spend pr- the premium price on the smaller bottle just so that that, you know, that particular shopping trip, <laughs> you're not spending as much. And 
that just struck me as a little bit, I don't know, like nonsensical, like economically as a consumer to like, it's probably more expensive per ounce or whatever milliliter oh, to, buy, to buy the smaller bottle. Um, like, I'm, and why would you do that and not just opt for the bigger bottle? Like, have you have you ever done that? No. I mean, I think the only thing I can ever imagine or have ever purchased in a half bottle is like vermouth. Yeah. Which is obviously not really the same, not exactly what we're talking about here. Um, I, I think that they're... Like just I, to know, have the s- more premium thing, like you buy the smaller bottle of it instead of buying something less yeah, premium I, but having the full size bottle. I know that someone relays that anecdote in this piece. Yeah. I, I would need to see actual data of like a true increase in sales of that of you know 375 milliliter bottles or whatever to to believe that it was happening i actually thought the thing you were going to raise in here which is interesting too is the you know our celebrity tequila or not tequila <gasps> yes. specifically, but celebrities liquor brands driving this up you know there's a there's a a data point cited here that, you know, according to sort of survey data, people are willing to spend more for celebrity brands than non-celebrity brands. And sorry, 73% more. Yeah. That's a lot. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think (laughs) we're going to see, again, that's one of those things where that's, you know, how does survey data meet meet, or match real, real life data? I don't know. But the point is there's certainly some belief and some, you know, some truth to the idea that like for a lot of consumers that celebrity product that you know endorsed or created or whatever product is uh, merits a higher price tag mm-hmm. and as we've seen more and more of those products come onto the market I, I could see there being an argument that that's also part of what's driving this even if it's not the thing that's necessarily these you know crazy examples but I'm actually surprised we haven't seen like a you know, really, really, really high-end bottle from one of these celebrity spirits brands, you know, a instead of a, you know, one or $200 bottle, why aren't they putting a $1,000 bottle out there? You would think they would be the right kind of brand for that. Maybe it cuts against their goals of selling a million cases or something, but mm. I don't know. Yeah, that is interesting. Like, a, I don't know what the most expensive expression of Casamigos is at this point. Yeah. Like, do they have a Cristalino? I don't know. Yeah, I I thought that was interesting as well. That was quite surprising to me. But I guess that I I guess there's also like there there are the nuances of like of premium, right? Like premium for most consumers or like what the actual um, price range is for something considered premium. Right, Zach? It's actually lower than you think or that premium would necessarily like connote to people. Yeah. And then there's super premium and ultra pre- premium. Yeah. There's like the di- there's always a disconnect between the way that like these things are classified sort of with like yes. scan data and stuff like that where you know all of these things all of the terms are like apply to products that are like way less expensive than you or I would think of. Right. And then there's a kind of colloquial usage which I think we're more kind of sticking with here which is like you know I think it's trading if up. You look it's at, trading up. Yeah, yeah. And like kind of almost it's more of a vibes thing where like you know do you are is it a price point where we're like when you pick it up or you look at it on the shelf you're like ooh, like really <laughs> you know is it the spirit that are they the bottles that are like you know locked away when you go to a liquor store and you have to ask someone to get it out for you like you know that kind of stuff is kind of i think more what we're sort of talking about even if that's not you know again sort of the technical breakdown within the industry and there i think the last 
thing I wanted to ask you about mm-hmm. and the last thing that I am curious about in this is, is, you know, for a long time, uh, when you talked about those really high-end spirits, we were talking about mostly very long aging processes on them, right? We're talking about your 20-plus-year-old scotches, your very old cognacs, that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. That was the thing that commanded the very high price. And they came in often very ornate, sort of elaborate packaging. You know, the bottles were often, you know, sort of art pieces themselves. And what we're seeing now is certain brands, certain categories even, trying to kind of like jump in and offer a product at a similar price point without the sort of relatively easy to explain uh, like... Justification for the price. Yeah, justification of like, hey, this is 20, 30 years old, whatever. And whether that's tequila, which just doesn't have, you know, there are aged tequilas, but for the most part, you know, you're talking about three, five-year-old tequilas, even, you know, on the very kind of uh, extra añejo side, or they're not aged spirits at all, or they're spirits that we don't associate with barrel aging at least. So how old they are doesn't really, it's not quite as meaningful. Like, do you think that these spirits without that sort of 20 or 25 years worth of time investment kind of justifying their cost, do you... How do you like how do you feel they're justifying it and do you think it's connecting with people? I was I'm just trying to think of examples of what you're talking about. Like on you know, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars. I don't know I can't think of an example. Obviously like two hundred, three hundred dollars, nineteen forty two, something like that, age two and a half years. What was the question? <laughs> oh, well, I just was thinking about like it's true that you're right that like we're not seeing like at least as far as I'm aware like thousand dollar bottles of gin or something right. like that. You know, maybe there is one out there. Maybe someone would make the argument that they're making it with like you know some of the world's most you know rare and expensive ingredients. I guess yes. probably I'm saying this and someone's going to email in. And if you do know podcastifyandprayer.com, send it. You know, someone's saffron putting, and like, gold you know, leaf. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so it's possible that it's out there for sure, but I just think like. You, at the same time, though, you're still seeing, if not all the way up to, you know, uh, the pricing that, you know, a really, you know, a 60-year-old scotch could command, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a bottle or something. You are seeing the sort of attempts to push that price point well above $100 for even spirits that we think of as, like, not being, you know, just not having that same time commitment uh, at a minimum. Yeah, like, I don't know what paved, what paved the way for that. It, is it tequila? Is it like, is it bottle service at clubs? Like, I mean, again, like I said, I think it's it's been a sort of broad level desire for people to consume conspicuously and in a premium level. And as we've talked about a bunch of different ways on the pod, as like spirits and cocktails have just become much more, ex- not acceptable Popular. exactly, but just like central parts of American drinking experience in particular, maybe global drinking experience. People want a thing to spend on, right? They want a point of differentiation for themselves from the, you know, everyone else. And if the way you do that is you drink a martini made with a hundred dollar bottle of gin instead of a forty or fifty dollar bottle of gin, there will be a market for that. I don't again don't know if there's a market for the thousand dollar bottle of gin. I, I almost want to find out. I mean, I feel like I, I'm curious. I'm sort of surprised. Uh, you know, maybe it, like I said, maybe it is out there, but it just is one of those things where some of it is just. You know, there doesn't, you know, you're not gonna have the same volume, but it does seem like kind of every step up the price ladder, such as it is, there is an audience for it because some people 
are validated just by the spend. Yeah. I think I think bourbon, like you were saying, like scotch and then bourbon kind of paved the way for people spending more or being willing to spend more. And yeah. then something like tequila kind of snuck in and was like, yeah, I'm not or it's not aged as long, but this is why you should spend this amount of money for it. And maybe it's production method or something like that or the bottle or all these other reasons. Yeah. And just exclusivity, you yeah. know, limited availability, prestige, all those things. Yeah, they all play into it. And they're all, you know, it's it's as the category as spirits as a whole are very popular right now. You know, it's, it's easier and easier to sort of make the pitch to people of here is the next, you know, here's the next best one ever. And this is what it costs. And some some people are going to say like, okay, I'm I'm with you. Um, yeah. Even if the price tag to us or to most drinkers seems exorbitant. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think um, obviously we continue to watch this and not sure what's going to stop it or when the trend will end necessarily. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not convinced it will end. I think you'll see, you know, some of these, some of these will fail. Some of them will succeed. Some of them will, you know, kind of quietly slip off into the darkness. But I think that, this country has such a different relationship to spirits than it ever has before, and I think that 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 element alone explain will 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 you know support more of these premium spirits than used to exist in the past. Yeah, let us know what you think. Is is this something like some of this behavior? Is that what you follow in your lives? Like, what do you think of premiumization? Um, hit us up at VinePair. Nope. Podcast at VinePair.com. Yep. And Zach, I will talk to you on Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the VinePair podcast, the flagship podcast of the VinePair podcast network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vinepair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire VinePair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.